This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to British Murders, a true crime podcast with a focus on British murder cases. My name's Stuart Blues, and I'm excited for you to join me on this journey of morbid discovery. I'm by no means an expert on the subjects of homicide and serial killers, however I have always had a sick fascination with them. Together we will learn about some of the lesser known British murderers, as well as glimpsing occasionally at some of the more notorious ones. The bite-sized presentation of this podcast is intentional, as we look to cover an overview of the respective timelines of each case succinctly. You may be familiar with an American writer named Thomas Harris. This is the man responsible for creating a series of suspense novels about a certain doctor who has a penchant for devouring human flesh. I am of course talking about the infamous fictional cannibalistic serial killer Dr. Hannibal Lecter. For many of us, the film adaptations of Thomas Harris's books, Red Dragon, Hannibal, and most famously, The Silence of the Lambs, were our first introduction into the taboo act of humans consuming human flesh. This practice is something which, to most people, is incomprehensible, disgusting, and downright unforgivable. This episode of British Murders, however, focuses on an individual who didn't share those largely unanimous views. For the duration of this broadcast, I'll be discussing the life and crimes of a man known as both Peckish Pete and the London cannibal, Peter Bryan. A quick note that I will be referring to Peter Bryan as simply Peter throughout this episode. This is to avoid confusion with another person involved in the story who is also named Bryan. Saturday, October 4th, 1969. This was a rather slow news day in history. It saw the last wooden passenger subway cars retired at Brooklyn Myrtle Beach, the United Nations started issuing postage stamps at Geneva headquarters, and Major League Baseball held the first games for the 1969 American League Championship Series. So unless you're a train buff, a pacifist, or a baseball fan, this was as uneventful a day as you could ask for. Until, that is, in a London hospital, the youngest baby of Mr. and Mrs. Bryan, an immigrant couple from Barbados, with six children already, was welcome to the world. They named him Peter. Not much is known about Peter Bryan's childhood. However, it is known that he attended a junior school in Forestgate and a secondary school in Canningtown, 
Both of these areas are residential districts in the East London borough of Newham. Side note, Forest Gate is famous in the UK for being the home of British grime MCs D-double-E and FTSE, collectively known as the Newham Generals. A little bit of local knowledge for you there. Peter left school around the age of 14 or 15, which in the English school system would mean he left in year 10, or in the American system, the 9th grade. When he left school, he worked at a clothes stall, followed by a sting working at his local soup kitchen, providing cooking lessons, randomly. In 1987, at the age of 18, Peter lived in the Flying Angel Custom House, a residential tower block in Newham, East London. It was here where Peter committed his first known act of violence. In an unprovoked attack, Peter attempted to throw another resident from his apartment's window, which was six floors up. The unnamed victim was having none of it, and put up a decent fight. In the struggle, the intended victim managed to strike Peter on the head, leaving a deep gash. The intended victim was questioned by the police about the gash on Peter's head, however no further action was taken against either the intended victim or Peter himself. It surely would have been harsh to have prosecuted the intended victim due to the injuries sustained by Peter in this situation. Self-defence was likely taken into consideration along with the lack of wanting to press charges, leaving the case dead in the water for the police. In 1993, Peter was working as a shop assistant for a fashionable boutique on London's historic King's Road. He had fallen head over heels for the shop owner's 20-year-old daughter, Nisha Sheth, before being sacked after he was caught stealing clothes. On the 18th of March 1993, at the young age of 23, Peter committed his first murder. Only a week after losing his job at the boutique, Peter returned to the store with a claw hammer to exact his revenge. After knocking Nisha Sheth's 12-year-old brother, Bobby, to the floor, Peter proceeded to brutally strike her on the head around six times. Nisha died almost instantly, long before any paramedics could make it to the scene. Ridden with guilt, Peter jumped from the third floor balcony of a building in Battersea, southwest London, in an apparent suicide attempt whilst allegedly high on cannabis. He survived the attempt. After admitting to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility, Peter was sent to Rampton Secure Hospital in 1994. This is a high-security psychiatric hospital in Nottinghamshire, a county in the East Midlands region of England. For those who aren't aware of what diminished responsibility means, it is an unbalanced mental state that is considered to make a person less answerable for a crime and is grounds for a reduced charge or sentence. But that doesn't classify them as insane, per se. Essentially, rather than be sent to prison, Peter was sent to a psychiatric hospital due to his impaired mental functions. By February 2001, the nursing staff at Rampton thought Peter had made considerable progress in regard to his behaviour, attitude, maturity, relationships, anger and insight. In June 2001, Peter was transferred from Rampton to the John Howard Centre after a six-month trial leave project agreed by the Home Office. For any non-UK listeners, the Home Office is a ministerial department of the UK government responsible for immigration, security and law and order. Peter was released into the care of a psychiatrist and social worker and, 
After applying to a mental health review tribunal in 2002, he was moved to the Riverside Hostel in North London, sort of like a, a halfway house. He could come and go as he pleased, and was even given door keys to assist with this new level of freedom. It was a short-lived stay, however, which ended when Peter was caught blowing raspberries on a 16-year-old girl's stomach quite close to the hostel. For those unfamiliar with blowing raspberries, this is the common act of play in which a parent would make like a flatulence noise by placing the lips on a portion of the child's skin and just making a sort of a farting noise by blowing on the skin. Not something considered appropriate for an adult man to do to a 16-year-old girl, however, but, you know, parents would do it with the kids. Despite this, in November 2002, Peter's mental health social worker wrote to the Home Office stating that matters had settled down and that no further concerns were held. It was thought that Peter, quote, did not present any major risks, end quote. How wrong they were. It was also remarked by Peter's social worker that he was showing continued improvement in his behaviour, and in October 2003, psychiatrists noted there had also been a continued improvement in his mental state. Plans were discussed to move Peter to more independent accommodation, which is sort of the next step in the rehabilitation process. In January 2004, social workers applied for the transfer of Peter to low support accommodation. Instead, Brian was transferred to an open psychiatric ward at Newham General Hospital for his safety after the allegations of indecent assault against the 16-year-old mentioned earlier that he blew raspberries on outside of the hostel. On February 17, 2004, it was agreed that Peter could leave the ward as much as he wanted. By 7pm that very night, however, Peter had walked out of Newham General Hospital and killed his second victim and his friend, Brian Cherry. In the space of about three hours, he left the hospital and killed his friend. That's how long it took him. It's got to be the definition of gross negligence on the hospital's part right there. Brian Cherry was 43 and lived a secluded life in a ground floor flat in Walthamstow, a major district in northeast London. At around 7.15pm, Brian's friend Nicola Newman let herself into the flat and instantly noticed an unusually strong smell in the air. It was disinfectant. Peter appeared from the living room topless and holding a knife. He proceeded to announce to Nicola, calm as you like, Brian is dead. Feeling that Peter wasn't serious, because why would you, Nicola peered into the living room to see what was going on. In the middle of the room, on top of a maroon rug, lay Brian's dead body, laying on its side. Placed next to the body were both of Brian's arms as well as his left leg, meaning the right leg was the only limb left attached to the body. Peter had hacked these three limbs off using a variety of knives left around the crime scene. The severed left leg was partly sawn and partly fractured. At the top of the right leg, the muscle had been completely divided and superficial sawing of the bone had commenced. The pathologist concluded that Peter had been interrupted before he could complete the amputation of the right leg. Peter later admitted that he was comforted by the smell of blood and used a Stanley knife to cut the limbs off as well as some other kitchen knives noting that he had to stamp on them to break the bone. That is absolutely grim. When the police arrived, they noticed a frying pan on the hob with a small amount of meat in it. Next to the pan was an open tub of butter. 
the meat was part of Brian's brain. More brain tissue and hair matted with blood was heaped on a plate next to a knife and fork on the draining board. Chillingly, Peter told the officers, I ate his brain with butter. It was really nice. Later adding, I would have done someone else if you hadn't come along. I wanted their souls. Imagine how terrified you would have been as one of the arresting officers. I think I'd have shit my pants. Brian's skull had been smashed open with at least 24 blows from a hammer, and his head had been partly sawn off as well. After initially being sent to Pentonville Jail in Barnsbury, North London, Peter told a member of staff that he wanted to kill a warder and eat someone's nose. As a result, prison officers had to use riot shields when unlocking his cell for fear of being attacked, or I assume for fear of their noses being eaten. On April 15, 2004, Peter was admitted to Broadmoor, a high-security psychiatric hospital in Berkshire, South East England. For a little bit of context for those not in the know, Broadmoor is a very famous psychiatric hospital in the UK. It's notorious for housing some very famous residents in its time, people such as Peter Sutcliffe, who was known as the Yorkshire Ripper, Charles Bronson, and Ronald Cray of Cray Twin fame, basically. There's a film called Legend with Tom Hardy in it that you may have seen or at least be familiar with. That was based on the Cray twins. Peter was initially placed in a cell upon his arrival at Broadmoor. However, after only four days, he was allowed to mingle with the other patients under what is known as general observations or 15-minute checks. He persuaded staff he was not a threat and they deemed him pleasant and cooperative and let him out after the first few days in solitary. Doctors believed he had settled and could be transferred to the medium-risk ward. A few weeks later, Peter attacked his third and final victim to date. Another little bit of gross negligence there from the hospital. On April 25th, 2004, whilst unsupervised, Peter strangled 60-year-old inmate Richard Loudwell. Richard Loudwell was awaiting trial for the murder of an 82-year-old woman and was a patient on the same ward as Peter. Peter had tried to strangle Mr. Loudwell with a piece of cord and smashed his head on the floor. The 60-year-old inmate was taken with life-threatening injuries to Frimley Park Hospital in Surrey, South East England, on April 25, 2004, but died 41 days later, on June the 5th, having never regained consciousness. At an inquest in 2012, Peter said he smashed Loudwell's head on the floor and tied a ligature around his neck so that he would not make any noise. Joanne Fisher, a registered mental nurse and team leader on the Luton Ward of Broadmoor, said Peter had told her, I got him from behind, I put a ligature around his neck so that he wouldn't make noise, and I smashed his head. She added in the statement read to the inquest, Peter said he had been thinking about it for a few days. He also said, I wanted to eat him. The family of Loudwell was given £40,000 in 2009, which is the equivalent of around 48500 in today's money. This was the largest ever single payout at the time. Peter later told doctors, I get these urges, you see. I've had these urges ever since I saw him. He's the bottom of the food chain, old and haggard. He looked like he'd had his innings. I was just waiting for my chance to get at him. I wanted to kill him and eat him. 
I didn't have much time. If I did, I'd have tried to cook him and eat him. When asked if wanting to eat people was normal, Peter replied, of course it's normal. Cannibalism is normal. He's been here for centuries. If I was on the street, I'd go for someone bigger, you know, for the challenge. I felt excited when I attacked him. I wanted to shag him when he was alive and also when he was dead. I wanted to cook him, but there was no time. Nor was there access to cooking equipment. I briefly considered eating him raw. Peter named another patient as his next target and added, It's something like a ritual. I must be becoming a serial something. Case prosecutor Aftab Jaffaji said, Peter believed that the human body was a natural food source and it made him stronger. He had wanted to kill eight people because he wanted to be known as a serial killer. Peter even told the doctors he thought he would be released into the community again despite killing three people. Brian pleaded guilty to the manslaughters of Mr. Cherry and Loudwell on the grounds of diminished responsibility. The same thing he did after killing Nisha Sheth in 1993. He was ordered to serve two life sentences in prison. Psychiatrist Dr. Martin Locke, who carried out a series of Silence of the Lamb style interviews with Peter, said he was the most dangerous man he's ever assessed. Peter told Dr. Locke, you look like a brainy chap, and you are quite slim. I think I could take you. Peter also described the victim's arms and legs as tasting like chicken, that old one. Case prosecutor Aftab Jaffaji said that Peter should die behind bars, adding, He is at his most deadly when he is able to present himself as entirely calm and settled. That was the story there of British murderer Peter Bryan, known as both Peckish Pete and the London Cannibal. A truly disturbed man, suffered from schizophrenia. There's not much known about his childhood, but I mean, it's got to be quite bad, hasn't it? Considering where he ended up in life and how his mentality is now. For more on British murders, please like and subscribe to my channel on social media. All the links are going to be in the episode description. If you have any suggestions, please send them to the email, which is britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com. I'll have a look at them and I might cover them in a future episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes and on Facebook as well if you could. It really helps the channel grow and it would be greatly appreciated. For now, I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio.